Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. We are continuing our conversation on coastal funding, perhaps one of the most important topics related to how do we address Louisiana's land loss crisis and fund the projects needed to restore our coast. Um, This conversation happened several weeks ago at the State of the Coast Conference and featured our very own Simone Malaz. So today we're going to continue with Stephen Barnes, who's an economist with Louisiana State University, as well as Shannon Kniff, who we've had on the show. She's with Environmental Defense Fund, and she's going to be talking about environmental impact bonds and some of the work that they have coming out looking at how we can explore environmental impact bonds to do more with the money that we have. So we hope you enjoy the conversation. Simone and I have missed you, and we hope to be back in studio real soon. Have a great 4th of July, and here is the Coastal Funding Panel from State of the Coast. Briefly, I want to show you what uh, gas royalties look like, and been relatively flat. Most importantly, I'm going to go back to oil, and we see we've got numbers in the hundreds of millions And over here, when we look at gas royalties, numbers in the tens of millions. So really a whole different scale. And I'm not going to talk much more about uh, gas royalties today. They they matter. Certainly any dollars that that are going to come uh, come to the table for revenue sharing are important and are part of the study. uh, But I'll focus on the oil side of things today. So just to put in a visual here, these recent trends we've been talking about. And uh, we we, we did a similar panel like this, uh, you know, maybe a month or six weeks ago. Um, I actually stopped to make sure I updated this because even in the last month, six weeks, this story keeps getting better. So yes, we've seen a big downturn. We've seen an extended period of suppressed prices for oil, but fortunately, uh, this recent emerging trend of some recovery in the price of oil, you know, it's been holding uh, and, and I think, you know, generally we're seeing more optimism uh, and seeing you know, a little life in this industry. So that's good news. Uh, and, and that's going to be sort of a starting point for thinking about, you know, how much do we think we can kind of stay in this holding pattern where things are still active out there in the Gulf and how much might we expect things to really pick up? Okay, so I do have a chart in here that looks just at production. So we're talking about setting aside price. Uh, we know price influences how much production we see out here, but just you know, the, 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 you know, how many barrels and, and left-hand side axis here is in millions of barrels. Um, not sure how many of you can read the numbers there, but you know, the, the cap here is goes up to about 700 million barrels. Our, our chart here historically shows that, that, you know, we've hit close to 600 million barrels a year, uh, several times. And actually most recently things have been on, on quite an ups, upswing there with production going up and up. So that's good news. But that's production in the entire Gulf of Mexico. Now want to pivot and, and think specifically about Gomesa. How does Gomesa factor into this? So I started by saying Gomesa phase two really expands the area for, for revenue sharing, but it only expands the area for new leases, leases that were put in place, or sorry, uh, uh, tracks that were uh, acquired in, in auctions after the passage of Gomesa. So out of all of this uh, activity out in the Gulf of Mexico, and the contrast is a little hard to see here, but down at the bottom right edge of this graph, you'll see some dark purple, tiny little dark purple bars. And that represents the Gomesa qualified portion of Gulf of Mexico production. So almost negligible up until about 2012, 2013, you start to see some darker bars. Uh, when we get out to 2017, um, we're, we're looking at something that's that's 
you know, less than 5% of Gulf production. So that tells us a lot about, you know, when we think about where we are today, what did we get this year coming out of Gomesa for, for year one of phase two? What might that tell us about where we'll be next year and following years and, and further down the road? And so to kind of imagine what that time dynamic does to the gradual accumulation of Gomesa qualified revenues, we did a little thought experiment. We said, well, what if Gomesa had started five years prior to this? How much more would we have accumulated uh, in terms of Gomesa qualified revenues? And what we're thinking about here in the dynamic in the Gulf is, you know, out of all of this production, some of that's fairly old production that's about to be retired, and some of that's new production that's coming online. And so even if those overall bars may not move by much, over time we're going to have more and more of that production activity coming from new uh, new activity, new exploration, new production, and all the new stuff is what qualifies for GoMesa. So this next graphic tries to kind of illustrate over time, and the cut points for every five year, again, kind of blurry out here uh, on the projector, but if we go back and imagine GoMesa having started five years prior, then we'd see much more uh, sort of qualified revenues available to us today. And if you think about the, the darkness of that shading in that final bar of 2017, you know, those darker areas we would think of as relatively new production. The lighter areas at the top is the old production that's going to be retired. And so we, this sort of at least paints a picture for us about how we're going to see the royalty sharing snowball gradually over time and become a greater and greater contribution to the overall GOMESA uh, 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 qualified revenues. All right, so then, so that's important. So, so that, that gets us to a place where we can anticipate as time passes, we're, you know, hopefully the price of oil will continue to rise. That's going to help get us there much more quickly. But even just on the basic production side, over time we're going to see more and more of that production qualify for GoMesa, and that's going to get us back into a revenue-sharing environment where we're talking about hitting caps. And that's you know, kind of back where we thought. So, so I think the good news here is we do think GoMesa can be what we all had sort of hoped or expected it might be in terms of a, a, a bigger, uh, more stable source of revenue, but we're going to have a little time to get to, to, to kind of build up to that. All right, now we've got to think about how we're distributing these uh, these dollars and uh, state distribution um, is based on a, a sort of complicated formula. I, I, I held off of actually putting any formulas and equations in the slides for today, but the idea is based on the inverse distance to historical lease sites. And so, in, intuitively, the idea would be states that are closer to where that production is coming from get a larger share, and therefore. The, we, we would expect the states that are doing more to support that activity are getting a larger share. Whether those proportions are really, you know, set up appropriately, are we getting a fair share? There's a separate question, but at least the areas that are closer are going to get more dollars. But what's really important here is it's based on historical lease sites, which is actually a very specific term. So it's, it's, it's based partly on what's, what's active out there today, what might become active in the future, but it's also based on things that have ever been leased historically. So that actually turns out to be a very high percentage of, of tracks out there in the Gulf. And that means as, as time passes, we expect this to, to be pretty stable in terms of this year-over-year changes in allocation. Not going to change by too much because there's just so much weight in those historical lease sites that really drive the story of that allocation uh, calculation. Um, for coastal political subdivisions, the distribution is based partially on a similar inverse distance calculation. 
Um, 50% of it is based on a, that, that same kind of calculation that we do for states. 25% based on relative population. So within that state, how much population is in each of these coastal political subdivisions. And then 25% based on the relative coastline length. Um, so, and, and uh, one other note about the uh, relative population, that's something that's based only on the most recent census. So that's something that's gonna be very state, perfectly fixed over time until we get a new census and then we might see a big revision. So when we think about how, you know, how the dollars will be allocated across the coastal political subdivisions, that's gonna be something that's pretty stable and predictable until we get a new census and then you know, we, we might see a, a reallocation, reshuffling based on what those new census population numbers tell us. So those are kind of the major mechanisms. Um, and again, we're, we're sort of still working through uh, kind of turning that intuition and building all the data sets that we've got together, sort of putting those together and making a forecast. Um, but you know, I think the most important thing when we think about some of our early thinking about GoMesa, it looked like the bonus bids were getting us there. We were getting so many dollars from bonus bids and you put leases on top of that, we were hitting revenue sharing caps um, you know, year after year. Uh, the royalties piece early on looked like it wasn't a big deal, but as over time it's going to continue to accumulate and become a bigger and bigger driver and before long uh, eventually carry the, carry the weight regardless of what's happening with bonus bids and, and rents. Thank you so much, Stephen. So we'll hand it over to Shannon now for another piece of the financing puzzle, which is environmental impact bonds. Okay, I'm Shannon Kniff, and we'll move to the next slide as soon as I can find the page down button. There we go. Okay. So um, I'm going to talk about the environmental impact bond project that I've been working on for about the last year. Um, this is work that was funded by the Nature Conservancy's uh, Nature Vest uh, Conservation Accelerator. So we're funded by TNC's Nature Vest Conservation Accelerator, and basically what we're trying to do is design and evaluate the feasibility of an environmental impact bond and can it support CPRA's coastal wetland restoration efforts. So we're looking at sort of three fundamental factors. Can it lower the cost of restoration? Can it accelerate restoration? And is it possible through this mechanism to actually attract other payers to that restoration? So before I dive in, well, I'm gonna explain this about six different ways to Sunday and one of them might click for you. So let's start with the what's a bond, right? So a bond is basically a, um, you know, a debt instrument akin well, any bond is a debt instrument where the government gets access to capital and then has to repay it with interest. So an environmental impact bond is basically akin to a regular municipal bond. But it has a couple of interesting twists because what it does is it focuses and uses a performance-based approach. And I'm going to drill into that a, a little bit more today. But so what do you get from an EIB? So it's a form of debt, it's outcome-based. It also has an ability to share risks across the different participants in the bond. And I'll explain that more uh, a little bit later. Um, and then finally, I mentioned it's this mechanism for allowing multiple players to partner with the state if they desire to. So as we started to think about um, you know, okay, how do we move forward on this project? The first thing we had to do was establish, you know, A, is a bonding going to actually save money? And is it going to be enough money to make a difference? So we did several different analyses. This is just one. 
Uh, but we basically looked at what are the cost savings if we were able to accelerate a project and basically move it 10 years earlier in time. And so this particular example, which is really pretty emblematic of the others that we've done, um, it's 44% savings, so not insignificant. So most of that savings is due to you know, inflation, changes in construction proce uh, prices. But a piece of it, and a not insignificant piece, is also due to subsidence and sea level rise because you basically have more sediment down. Okay, so an environmental impact bond then is a bond with benefits. So an environmental impact bond basically can allow a government entity to experiment it because it allows that risk sharing that I mentioned earlier. So it's a really good mechanism if a government sort of wants to try something new but hasn't ever done it before and doesn't want to sort of risk the wrath of the taxpayers. Um, and that's why you'll see some municipalities are using environmental impact bonds now for green infrastructure for helping with stormwater management. Uh, the, whoops. Now, the other really cool thing, and this is maybe my fi favorite part about the EIB, is it allows the in in incentives of the various stakeholders to be aligned. And so this occurs basically by the fact that embedded in the environmental impact bond um, transaction mechanism is the generation of performance-based data. So you start to establish what are the benefits that come, in this case, let's say, from wetland restoration. That data can then sort of start to uh, almost snowball, I hope. <laughs> the effect would be that you can attract other folks interested in paying for a project because they see that they get real benefits from it. Uh, so that attracts the payers, but it also is important because it can help build and sustain the public and political support for things like wetland restoration. So here is sort of the illustrative um, EIB transaction, and let me walk you through the sort of basic parties here. So first you have to have a financial intermediary. So that's somebody who helps structure the deal, you know, convinces and aligns everybody why they're interested and should play and have, you know, they have skin in the game and they should play with this. Um, in this case, I stuck uh, Quantified Ventures, who is really the brains behind um, our study of the environmental impact bond uh, concept. And they're the ones that worked on environmental impact bonds for um, uh, green infrastructure. So then you have to have investors. Oh yeah, them, right? They're the ones that bring the upfront capital. Uh, then you have to have the restoration industry firms themselves. They're the service provider. And I'll get back to them in a bit. And of course, CPRA has to be part of this because they're the ones who are gonna have to repay the investors with principal and interest. Now, because I said it was performance-based, that means you have to have a third party that everybody agrees and trusts, and they're going to evaluate the performance of the bond. Was it meh? Was it what we expected? Was it outstanding? And you can do any variation on those themes, but basically that paper performance concept is that you are, or in, in the context of this bond, is that you are rewarding really good performance. And in some constructs of an EIB, you can even reduce the interest rates uh, that are paid to the investors 
clawing back basically some money for poor performance, which gives some money for actually doing something about that. But the really cool part that I've alluded to already is what you can do with an EIB. Because of this construct, you can actually then bring in additional payers that derive benefits. So in Louisiana, what could that look like? It could be folks that receive lower um, risks because wetlands have a buffer in capacity and uh, they have coastal assets that are uh, additionally protected. It could be folks like levy districts or whatever um, that have lower O&M costs because that wetland, again, is attenuating waves and you know, less, less damage to the, the toe of the levy. So what did we do to do this analysis? So we did, we, first we had to figure out, you know, where should we design this around? So I'm not gonna go into great detail here, but we looked at 31 restoration projects that are in the coastal master plan. And we looked at ones that are in the latter part of phase one and in phase two. So those were ones where funding streams hadn't been, you know, pegged to a particular project. And we considered a lot of you know, uh, factors about, well, what would make a project doable and what would make one maybe a stronger candidate than another. So without belaboring it, what we ended up doing is picking the, uh, the Bell Pass Golden Meadow CMP site, restoration site. Now, because uh, the state had suggested to us that if they were going to try an environmental impact bond, the very first one that they would do, they'd prefer to do something in the range of 30 to $50 million. So, you know, toe in the water, let's see if it works, let's see if we generate the savings and is it, you know, is it doable for us? So obviously that kind of money isn't gonna pay for the entire coastal master plan site of Bell Pass Golden Meadow. So we down selected and just found a site where we had really good data on the restoration costs. So that's why you see this area to the west of Port Fouchon. And it is not a, it's not a coincidence that there are significant economic assets at risk in that area. You may be wondering about the performance piece here. Um, so if we have wetland construction, you have that happening, you have direct effects, right? And this is usually what the contractor is responsible for, whether it's a regular contract or a pay for performance contract. It's how many acres of new wetland are created. Was it the amount you wanted? Uh, does it have the right ratio of open water to vegetation? Does it have the right amount of vegetative cover, the right species? Is it at the right elevation? All of these kinds of reasons. Contractor's responsible for that. So we needed to think about, well, what are actually the outcomes that we want from this project? So in this slide, that's called indirect effects. Uh, and we looked at a number of things. Uh, you know, is, it, is the wetland gonna be sustainable? Um, you know, would it reduce exposure to, uh, for adjacent lands to additional land loss and erosive fo forces? Let me say that five, five times fast. Um, and could it even be increasing um, sediment um, uh, accretion, growing wetlands. What we ended up choosing was really focusing on avoided land loss. Did it help void m more land loss in the state? Is it slowing the rate of land loss down? And not just on the site, but adjacent to the site. So there's another value um, in the environmental impact bond um, when it's connected to pay for performance contracts. So think on this a little bit. If you just did a traditional bond issue and you um, paid for it 
pay for a, perform a pay for performance contract with one. We would have an extensive period, uh, both of the design construction, but uh, holding that contractor responsible for monitoring and doing the work. But if you do um, an environmental impact bond, you have the ability potentially, if you want, to decrease the period that the pay for performance contractor is doing the monitoring and shift that risk to, a th to um, uh, the investors. So that's where the third party evaluation comes in. They're doing the monitoring. So what I'm trying to say here is that the pay for performance contractor is off the hook a little bit earlier for their performance, that they don't have to spend as much money doing the monitoring. And therefore, it's sort of reasonable to assume that their cost, their bid on a project would be lower. The other thing uh, that's probably worth pointing out, and I'll talk to this again in the next slide, is there can be, you can do this with a regular traditional contract rather than a pay for performance contract. Because what we can do is that the interest, that performance bonus that um, is associated with an environmental impact bond can be paid not only to the investors, but a portion of it could go to the service provider. So, we have generated a myriad of multi-payer repayment options, and I'm not going to uh, walk you through them all. I'm barely going to walk you through the four that are here. But just to give you a little bit of a sense. Um, so on the far left is sort of business as usual. No bond, waiting for the money to come in. That's what the project is going to cost. In this case, $57 uh, million. And uh, so if you were to just... Uh, do the simplest environmental impact bond, where we would say the partner or the payer pays the guarantee, so that's the performance bonus. So you'd have CPRA responsible for a $40 million bond, the interest, in this case we calculated out as 6.1 million. And then the guarantor's job is to say, basically, if that performance is above expectation, so let's call it overperformance, we will give a bonus of eight, in this case, we threw out a number, eight million dollars. And now associated with this is also figuring out a probability. What's the probability of success? So this again is sort of theoretical at this point or notional, but let's say 30%. So they're, they're playing a little bit of a risk game as in any investment of, you know, 30% chance I'm gonna pay out eight million, 60% chance that it's just gonna be average performance and I'm not making any payment. Now, the, as you move to the right on the slide, there's more complexity. So like the next version is where the payer could cover the interest and CPRA is only paying for the principal. So why would they do that? Well, they might do that because they might look at the project and say, you know, I'm getting, in this case, $6 million worth of benefits by having that, that wetland restored near my property 10 years earlier. It's a worthwhile investment for me, and it's, I'm not paying for the whole thing, I'm just paying for six million. So, um, and then you can see the next one gets even more complicated. This is where um, the, the partner could match some of the actual principal payment. So the point here is really that the more complex you get, the more benefits there actually are to CPRA. 
but there's also more commitment on the part of the partner. So you really have to generate the data and have a compelling argument. So what we're doing is actually focusing on the very simplest of the environmental impact bond transactions. And our rationale is fundamentally, let's start simple and let's see if it works. And then, you know, even as you're constructing the deal, as you're starting to talk to partners, well, maybe it becomes a little more complex because they're interested in doing more. But let's start simple, the old KISS um, principle, I guess I would argue. Now, oh my God, this will make you throw up if you look at it quickly. So I'm not going to make you look at it for very long. But this is really the same transaction that I just described, but in a more graphical way. You know, you've got the impact investors that are, you know, giving you $40 million up front. Uh, CPRA gets the money, the money goes over, you know, into the contract to the wetland developer, and then it's all paid back slowly, you know, by the revenues that come in from the various Deepwater Horizon settlements. Um, and then, depending on if you have additional payers, uh, um, in addition to CPRA, the, you have the interest, the payments, and the performance payment all happening at the end. Well, principal is paid off during it, but uh, okay. So what are we learning so far? I would argue that we've learned so far, it's not only viable, it's potentially very attractive. So I'm gonna run through these benefits um, pretty quickly, but I've touched on several of them. So what does CPRA get out of it? Well, they get out the upfront capital. They get the restoration sooner. Uh, you've lowered the cost of that restoration, so it's much more fiscally efficient. Um, you can even work this so that you incentivize good contract um, uh, results, uh, you incentivize performance. You can potentially lower that pay for performance contract cost further. You have a mechanism for tracking the additional payers. And as I said at the very beginning, you, have you get that documentation that there are flood risk and land loss benefits that come out of that wetland restoration and possibly other you know, outcomes. You could look at any others if you wanted to. We're focusing on one that's fairly simple because it keeps the transaction of a cost of the EIB low. What do the payers get out of it? Okay, so the payers get a secure project earlier. Um, that project then is documented to, you know, provide that land loss benefit, the flood damage reduction benefits. They avoid, you know, business interruptions, damages that could occur, uh, and they help um, shore up the long-term financial, uh, or sorry, the long-term economic viability of the region. I didn't mention tax benefits. The way this is constructed, uh, you can actually have a nonprofit that holds the money and so that the money that go, the payers or partners pay in can be tax deductible. So there's another um, calculation that has to go into this. Contractors, well, okay, you know, yeah, they get rewards for superior performance. Uh, they get the work sooner. And I would argue they also get reputational benefits if they have those, um, that superior performance, which of course pays dividends for more, more work. And you know, any environmental impact bond would have to be profitable. Um, we see no reason this wouldn't pay normal market rates for bonds. Uh, so we, we're gonna just say it is profitable. And the interesting thing, or the cool thing is, there are more and more companies out there, investors, that are looking for investments that have social or environmental outcomes or benefits. Uh, and so they have these investment goals. And so a portion of their portfolio has to meet those goals. So, well, bingo, here we are. Uh, 
Um, and some of these projects are even paying higher premiums now. Um, they're called greeniums. So, um, where are we now? As you can tell from some of our slides, we're still in the process of doing analysis. We're certainly in the process of writing this up. We plan to have this available um, for the public to take a look at uh, our report, which will outline in more detail both what we did and what we're finding looking at July. Um, around that time, we'll have all sorts of briefing opportunities, so let me know if you have a group that we should be talking to. Um, in the interim, we do have a website. Um, good luck um, writing all that down really quickly. Uh, but if you just type in Google, EDF, uh, EIB, you'll find it pretty readily. We've got some basic information about EIBs, and then we will be putting together more sophisticated information after we finish our report. Um, around that time, we'll have all sorts of briefing opportunities, so let me know if you have a group that we should be talking to. Um, in the interim, we do have a website. Um, good luck um, writing all that down really quickly. Uh, but if you just type in Google, EDF, uh, EIB, you'll find it pretty readily. We've got some basic information about EIBs, and then we will be putting together more sophisticated information after we finish our report. So I'm going to kick off our, uh, our quite Q&A really quickly with uh, one brief question to our panelists up here and then turn it over to you in the audience for your questions as well. So start thinking of a few. So guys, I think we've talked a lot and established pretty firmly that all the work being undertaken here is being done through very close partnerships and just want to recognize briefly, we have government up here, we have academics up here, we have nonprofits represented as well. So we have a lot of great cross-sector partnerships already underway. What do you see as being the future of these partnerships moving forward as these studies start to wrap up, as this work um, kind of continues to progress? And then also, who else needs to be at the table? What other partners do we need to be including uh, as this work continues to advance? So open that up to all of you. Hopefully your mics are working. All right, um, you want to start, Shannon, or you? No, go ahead. Um, so I think that's a fair question. I was actually at a, another conference, and they, they indicated that partnerships were on the decline. Um, as a trend, and I could not disagree with that more. I definitely think that, um, first off, that some of our work with CPRA started as a partnership, and certainly in that 2017 engagement on the master plan, and that led us to this partnership, which is CPRA and philanthropy, and us, you know, relatively small organization like Restore Retreat. That led us to even more engagement and opportunities, and now um, we have found that um, some of our uh, biggest successes most recently and even looking forward is part of a partnership. Uh, we're in a partnership with Sea uh, Grant and the Water Institute on another initiative um, privately funded. So I actually think that that is definitely a trend here in Louisiana, especially in coastal, and that a lot of it is because we recognize, I think, both our strengths and weaknesses. So um, I'm maybe not as good as as the, with the numbers as some people, um, but, uh, but I can talk to them about what those numbers say and those kinds of things. So I definitely think, especially here in Louisiana, that's not just a trend, um, that's, that is the way to go and the way to be most successful lately. Well, yeah, I've actually been very impressed with the amount of partnership um, that's been occurring for quite some time. Um, I think you can tell from the, the EIB presentation, I think there is a real role for the private sector to play, especially if they're um, benefiting from projects. And so the more that we can establish what those benefits are and lock them down in a convincing manner, the better. And then I think we can 
uh, attract even more people to say, yeah, let's, let's make restoration happen. Just in terms of, uh, you know, what other partnerships can we look for, I think um, it makes a lot of sense as these projects are coming through and we start to get in more into the bonding and, and how to do it, to, to start engaging with other, you know, entities that have gone down that road before, like if whether it's a big port or a division of administration that might, ha you know, work close, more closely with the, the state's, you know, efforts to do that. Um, and the other thing that hasn't really been brought up is just kind of how can we work with some of the industries that are already kind of evaluating um, the risk on the coast, and whether it's insurance or reinsurance, and just what are the, what are the avenues there? I think that hasn't hasn't been. Um, we could do a lot in that direction. So, questions from the audience. Anybody have anything uh, that they want to pose to any of our panelists up here, or everyone as a group? Good. Awesome. <laughs> we covered everything. It's a very successful panel. <laughs> Mark, I knew, I was waiting for it. <laughs> Come on, Mark Davis. <laughs> My question is, how did y'all get so smart? <laughs> <laughs> We've been listening to you. <laughs> now we know that. Uh, on, the, on the EIB, which is an intriguing model, uh, I had two questions. First of all, I understand when you get down around Fort Bouchon, where you might have payers who really see and have an incentive to step in. Other parts of the coast, it's hard to know. I'm not sure who those payers might be. So my question is, what does your crystal ball say there? And the other is when you're, when you're trying to bring in third-party verifiers, uh, what happens if they are monitoring, they find something that's not what they're looking for? I mean, what does that mean for the contractor? When do they come back in, and do they have to agree with the verifier? The monitors not. How does that work? Right. Um, maybe I should do this. Okay. The first question was, <laughs> I've already forgotten what it was. Uh, oh, what other places? Uh, so when we did our analysis, we actually did look at um, several areas and went down to 31 and, you know, came down to a couple different subsets. There were other places where it would be, uh, there were clear flood risk reduction benefits that have been documented by RAND, and so you could make the argument. Uh, that you know, folks needed could could participate. One of the challenges, so St. Tammany's was one of those, and so one of the challenges there is okay if it's homeowners, um, how do you bring them together? And so maybe that's not a good one to start with. Um, but where there are some keystone industri industries, for example, or commercial assets, um, that might be a place to start. Okay, so the second question. Um, Oh God, now I've forgotten what that one was. Uh, third-party monitoring. Oh, third-party monitoring. So first of all, when, you, when we develop the transaction, the idea is that that's up there right up front as to what is going to be the outcome that um, is driving the performance benefit uh, or the performance uh, bonus. And everybody knows who that third-party uh, you know, independent evaluator is and has the methodology all up front. So it's all decided before the bond is even executed. So there is that transparency and agreement. So that, I think that's pretty fundamental. So depends on the, the other answer is depends on the transaction. So right now, what we're thinking about for uh, the Louisiana wetland restoration one is basically that there's performance and then there is above performance. There is no negative performance. 
And that can be addressed because the contractor themselves is responsible for meeting the requirements that the state sets out for them in the contract. We are providing that performance bonus on outcomes from that contract. So yeah, that wetland is X many acres and da da da, but does it actually um, help stave off some of the land loss? And so there is no tie to the contractor per se. So if they're underperforming, the state still has to get on them. If they're performing on average, great. If they're overperforming and the land loss rates, let's say, um, decrease significantly, whatever it's you know, predefined as, then that contractor gets a bonus. So they, or if you go that way. And so that can be a really strong motivating factor to not only perform, but perform well. Great. Well, many thanks to all of our panelists. Let's give them a round of applause.